Who decides medicine prices? How are vaccines made? Hello and welcome to this podcast in a series of health conversations on how to make the impossible possible, brought to you by FPIA. In this episode, we are asking how can we support medical innovation in Europe? We'll be looking at the importance of keeping the EU's pharmaceutical industry at the forefront of global progress, building on the recent remarkable advances during the COVID-19 pandemic and looking ahead at how to maintain and even accelerate this momentum, how this could be achieved and what might be the barriers blocking this progress. Well, my name is Sue Saville, and with me to tackle all these questions is the Director General of FPIA, Natalie Moll. Natalie, welcome to you. Good morning, Sue. Hello. So you've had such a busy time in the pharmaceutical industry in the past couple of years, of course. The spotlight has really been on you and all the members you represent. So firstly, let's just get an understanding of where Europe is now in terms of innovation. Yes, indeed, Sue. I'm very proud of being European. I'm proud to have studied science in Europe. Um, Europe has a very strong base on which to build in terms of science. We have been an engine room for medical innovation. There are very talented people, world-leading academic institutions, and as you saw during COVID, some incredible solutions coming from Europe. But life science investment has been leaving Europe to the US and Asia in recent years. And over the last 25 years, we have witnessed cutting-edge research and advanced manufacturing leaving Europe for the US, the UK, China, and other parts of Asia. So although we're very good at academic excellence, we're slightly behind in translating that into commercially viable innovations and new treatments for patients. So we really need to do much more to be able to match the global trends. For example, the US has 48% of the global new treatments being developed there and just 22% in Europe. So we really need to catch up and make more of our incredible uh, research that we have in our region. So what then are the barriers then to accelerating pharmaceutical innovation in Europe, if it can be done elsewhere? There are four barriers, actually, Sue, and some of them are to do with capital and finance. Just a simple fact, in Europe, there is about eight times less finance and capital available for biotech companies than, for example, in the US. And that is a fact. We are also 27 countries, so we can't really compare ourselves to single countries like the US or China, though we often do that. And this means that our SMEs, where a lot of the innovation comes from, experience a sort of valley of death between the great funding that they get at the very beginning, the seed stage funding, and then the later development where they need to actually go for partnerships with bigger pharma companies, with licensing deals or acquisitions. And we really miss in the middle that venture capital funding, for example, clinical trials that tend to be very expensive and very complex. What would be great there is to have a European level life science fund with public money as well as private investors. At the moment, we have very national funds and they also tend to focus very much on national funding, which of course cuts the pie in very small pieces. It would be also good, and this is often forgotten, to add SME chapters in free trade agreements. And you think, why is that? Because when we do free trade agreements with other parts of the world, and of course our companies then tend to trade with other parts of the world, those SMEs need to have similar conditions and whether it's about IP or other support for their innovative activities. So there are things that we can do in the capital and finance area. So that would be one. I said there are four. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the other one would be really... Uh, 
the willingness of European governments to value medical innovation. What does that mean? That's a lot of words. It, it's really recognizing that the incredible innovation that we're seeing, the sort of biotech revolution, the way that treatments are developed and the way that treatments deal with disease, it's no longer a chronic management of a disease, but it's actually understanding the underlying cause of a disease, sometimes modifying the disease, sometimes even curing the disease. And therefore what's happening is instead of chronically treating a patient for his or her lifetime, we're finding solutions that will mean, for example, less days in the hospital or other interventions that they won't have to have, operations or other things. So we're reducing the cost, if you like, throughout the lives patients, also increasing the quality of life of that patient. And so this new innovation needs to be valued in a different way. It's not just the chronic management of a disease, but it's really enabling that person to go back to being active and a part of society. And we need to see what savings are made down the line. And today, I think that healthcare systems are still geared to manage chronic treatments and are not really seeing pharmaceuticals as an investment in people's health or health systems, but are still seeing as a cost to the system. So I think supporting innovation also means exploring new models. We have new technology, which is really revolutionary. We can't fit that in an old system of evaluation. We need to transform, revolutionize, if you like, also the ways in which we value medicines, the ways in which we price them, the way in which a healthcare system manages to welcome those treatments in a sustainable way. So not just for today's patients, but also for tomorrow's patients. So that would be the second element. So availability of capital and finance willingness to value innovation, to think about things differently. And then there is the incentives framework. And what is an incentives framework? Well, uh, when you are in our business where it takes about 15 years to produce a medicine, if you're lucky, and the stakes are 10,000 to one. So you start with 10,000 molecules and you might get one after 15 years that works. You need to attract capital to carry out that research and that development for those 15 years. That's a long time. Usually investors after five years are looking for an exit. To do that, you need to give investors the confidence that when they invest in year one, there are systems, there are incentives in place that will ensure that they will get a return on investment if their 10,000 to one <laughs> bet works out. And these incentives are, for example, intellectual property rights uh, or other frameworks that will allow to ensure that investment is recouped. And today we're seeing a gradual erosion of intellectual property framework in Europe. We saw already an introduction of a waiver on supplementary protection certificates. So it's a bit complicated to explain in two minutes, but it sent a sort of message to investors, oh, Europe is changing. That incentive framework is not so predictable. And now we're reviewing legislation, which is fundamental for research, one on research for treatments for rare diseases, another one for treatments for children that contain really important incentives that have meant we've had a fantastic boom in medicines for these categories. Again, we're looking to revise them because the science has evolved, but we must be very careful to make sure that that incentive framework is very stable, very predictable and very attractive so that the investors keep having confidence in investing in Europe. If we don't do that, there are other parts of the world who are gunning for our technology. They're gunning for our industry, especially after COVID-19. They've seen how valuable this industry is, and they're setting up incentives to attract innovation and investment and companies there. So we have to be very mindful of the global competition that we're facing as well. 
And then the last thing would be the regulatory framework. So you can have lots of ingredients, but if you don't have the right temperature in the oven, it, nothing comes out of your recipe. And I think here that the European regulatory framework is also being reviewed. So we're reviewing everything at the moment. And we need to make sure that when we review that, it's a fantastic opportunity to become the best in class, have the fastest and most effective regulatory framework to make sure that we can deliver the science as quickly as possible to the patients using real-world evidence, using complex clinical trials, drug-device combinations. So incorporating all the new technologies that have been developed in the last 20 years since the legislation was revised last time and making us best in class. So those would be the four ingredients that I think would really make a difference to innovation in Europe today. So a more holistic, health economic approach and all of this opportunity, as you say, while revision is going on of the regulations. But but in the end, why does it even matter where the innovation happens? I mean, couldn't we just buy it in if it's being done very well elsewhere in the world? Well, I think innovation is not really just an abstract concept when it comes to healthcare. Innovation is really about new diagnostics and treatments and vaccines that can transform the lives of patients and protect whole populations, as we've just seen. And we've really noticed there's a whole body of evidence that shows that patient outcomes, so the results for patients are better in centers of research and development. So for diseases like cancer, clinical research constitutes a really important route for patients for which current therapies are not a viable option or not good enough to get access to the latest innovation in cancer via clinical trials. So if you have the research in a region, you will have clinical trials in that region. And put very simply, it means faster access to new treatment options for patients. We have about 8,000 medicines in development at the moment, and we're advancing solutions in areas where we've never had solutions. And it would be, first of all, for me, very frustrating, but extremely unfair as well if we were to hand our incredible research to other parts of the world who would develop clinical trials and patients in those parts of the world would have access first, and then we would just become net importers of that innovation. I think also for the healthcare systems as a whole, having research and development in a region really allows the clinical community to learn and get new expertise on using a new treatment so that when the treatment is there, we can quickly introduce it into systems and they can be very effective, also cost effective because you will have had time to get used to it. And of course, then last but not least, it matters for jobs. Our research-based industry employs about 830,000 people in Europe, including 120,000 just in research. And every year this goes up. Uh, it supports another 2.7 million jobs. So there's a whole network, if you like, of job creation. But also the SME and academic communities are also dependent on that research happening here and on those investments happening here. So if our industry invests every year about 39 billion euros in research and development, it also seeps out into other areas and enriches the general knowledge and the capability of our region to produce more research and to be uh, flourishing in terms of SMEs. So I think it really, really matters. It matters ultimately also for our economic resilience and recovery of the EU. We've noticed that when we calculated the activities of our industry contribute to about 100 billion euros directly to the EU economy and about 106 billion indirectly through supply chain and employee spending. And this is the highest contribution 
to the EU trade balance of any high-tech sector. So you can see this is an important sector, especially in a moment like now, and we need to look after it because that global competition is there. Those decisions on investment are being taken, and it does matter that it takes place in Europe. Well, you paint the big picture, you've got the facts and figures, but then specifically then, Natalie, how can it be done? What can the EU do at that level or indeed your industry do to support innovation in the way that you describe? Well, it's a great moment. Like I said, we're revising the basic fundamental legislation on which our industry functions. So this is the moment where we can take stock of the science, see where it's going adjust what needs to be adjusted and create that very stable, effective and globally competitive regulatory framework, incentive framework, and at the same time ensure faster access for patients and increase funding for SMEs. So those four things that we need, this moment in time we can actually do because we are in that legislative review. So that's wonderful. It's, it's really great to be in a moment where we may get the best recipe and the best oven temperature to get the best result, right? So if I start with incentives, we just need to make sure that the incentive framework that we end up with after this revision attracts and protects that investment in medical research in the EU. And I think that IP, we've seen it. It's really crucial not only for today's innovation, but also for future innovations. Like I mentioned, it takes 15 years to develop a product. For those 15 years, you need to have a very stable environment in terms of IP and incentives to make sure that you can keep developing the research that you want, whether it's on orphan medicinal products or for rare diseases, whether it's for diseases of pediatrics or for children or unmet medical need areas. For example, antibiotic resistance. We're talking about this a lot. We've had COVID-19, which is a very visible pandemic. There is a silent pandemic, the resistance to antibiotics. And there is an area that has had market failure. It's been very hard. You have to produce antibiotics and then not sell them, which is not a very good economic model, if you like. And there, we believe really push and pull incentives would really help make sure that we can create a better arsenal of antibiotics to fight any resistance. So that would be, for me, one of the areas where the current revision could make a difference. Then a regulatory framework that is stable, fast, and effective. And there, I mentioned already a little bit before what we could do. We could make sure that we use clinical trials, the new types of clinical trials that help new medicines get to patients faster. Make sure that that real-world evidence so that information after a product has been approved, the data that we collect is used more to refine the information. And then digital. We've noticed how important digital is, encouraging the use of all the emerging digital technology across the product lifecycle. We've already looked at how to strengthen EMA after COVID. We think that the role of the European Medicines Agency could be expanded in the assessment of drug device diagnostic combination. At the moment, medicines are assessed by the European Medicines Authority and devices and diagnostics nationally. We believe that there are so many new medicines that have both an element of drug and an element of device or diagnostic. So that's why they're called combination products. Over the past six years, about 20% of all approved products were combination products. So if we could boost that centralization and get that faster and more predictable, I think that would also be important. And then replacing paper patient information leaflets with electronic versions. So there are things that we can do there as well. Um, lastly, and most importantly, how do we make treatments 
accessible for patients faster and um, more equitably? How can we make sure that our medicines are available and accessible to all patients in the EU who need them? And this is something that is, I think, one of the most complicated things to do because the responsibilities lie in so many different parts. It's not just the industry's responsibility. It's not just the national authorities' responsibility or the European institutions. We really need to work together. And when you need to work together, that can be very difficult. However, I'd like to say, Sue, that when I looked at what we achieved in COVID-19, it was amazing. What we managed to do by working together in just one year, finding a vaccine, getting diagnostics, making sure people could be vaccinated and protected. It's just incredible what you can do when you collaborate to solve a common problem. So I really believe here we can do much, much more. And as an industry, we've looked at what the obstacles are. We found about 10 obstacles and we've found solutions for our obstacles or the ones where we have more of an impact, if you like. And for the first time, we're coming forward with some commitments to fix those from our side. It won't necessarily solve the access because as I mentioned, it's more complicated and not just one player can solve that. But we're committing to file in all 27 member states for pricing reimbursement discussions within two years of marketing authorization. So it means that at the very latest, within two years, we will have filed in all 27 member states, which is not something that we are currently able to do. And to make sure that that commitment is seen in actual facts, uh, we will make it visible through an online portal so that it'll be possible to see where those products are, in which member state, at what stage, what is the hurdle they're facing, how fast are they getting through, and how fast will they arrive at patients. So I think that's really important. It's a step, hopefully, in the right direction. We need to work together with member states because this goes hand in hand with a framework for equity-based tiered pricing. So that's a long word to say that we would like to ensure that the price of the medicines can vary between countries depending on their economic level and ability to pay. And that's really anchored on a principle of solidarity between countries. And that's something, again, that we can't make work on our own, but we've put forward a framework and we'd like to discuss. So the goal here is to reduce the time to patient for treatments. It's not possible when I look at data today that in some countries it can take up to 504 days for a patient to get a treatment, and in others it takes 120 days. That's just unacceptable. So we need to work together to really find solutions on access. And as an industry, we're stepping up and we look forward to having a discussion with others on how to fix all the hurdles that we've identified or that we identify together. And Natalie, it's interesting there, that transparency you say that you're working on as an industry and the importance that you put on working together, that collaboration, as indeed we've seen to try to address all of these. So it's such a, a big issue. You've painted the big picture and some great detail there in terms of what your asks are and what you're signing up to. Perhaps just to sum up, what would be your takeaway message about the importance then of keeping innovation at a level of momentum in Europe? Well, so here I'm biased by my scientific um, background as well, Sue. Everything is happening now in science, in medical science. We have the gateway open to finding solutions for, like I mentioned, we have these 8,000 medicines in the pipeline, hopefully cures and treatments and errors that we've never been able to treat before. 
the stakes really couldn't be higher. And as I mentioned, it's the perfect moment because we are revising all our framework of legislation. So the choices that we make today will define our innovation and economic future in Europe, certainly for the next 20 years until we revise this again. So as a region, we really can choose to innovate or to stagnate. And I'm not good at stagnating, <laughs> but you know, in an area like this, where we're talking about people's health, we cannot afford to stagnate. That is just unacceptable knowing what we have in terms of research base and capacity and capability. You know, if innovation happens elsewhere, then the high value, the highly skilled jobs, the research investment and advanced manufacturing that go with that will also move out. Backing innovation and boosting access should be the direction that we take while we revise this legislation. And I really believe we can do that together with other stakeholders. It means choosing the right policy levers to address the right issues and ensuring the right competencies are around the table. So it takes a few ingredients there, but we've done it with COVID. And I really believe that we can crack this nut as well together. This is the perfect time. And we're certainly committed to finding solutions together. Natalie Moll, Director General of FPIA, thank you very much indeed for your insights and for joining this health conversation. Thank you for having me. Goodbye for now. 